really need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. And good morning. This is Dave Debo. On today's program, Alexander Burgos is with us. He's a young Hispanic activist. He's done a lot of work in LGBTQ issues. He's active in democratic politics. And he's someone really who I think uh, can talk a lot about the threats that he sees, the obstacles toward a stronger Hispanic community, and the hope that he has, especially as a young activist. We're going to look at the, the whole structure of that with him. He's coming up in the second half hour today. But first, I'd like to talk a little bit about the health care safety net. We speak on this program a lot about underserved communities, groups of people who don't, in this case, have adequate access to health care. And in Greater Buffalo, there are four health care providers that specifically work to help out that population. They're the federally qualified health care centers. We've talked about them on the program before. We've even had some of them in here. It's the Community Health Center of Buffalo. It's Jericho Road Community Health Center, the various branches of the neighborhood health centers of Western New York, and then it is also Evergreen Health, which concentrates on the needs of the LGBTQ community. They say, though, that the work they do and the safety net is under threat. They say that a change in state policy could decimate their services, doing all sorts of damage to the safety net, putting holes in it, when certain changes to the way they're paid happen in April. That's when New York State will make changes to funding and reimbursement in a model called 340B. All of these centers are in a big push to get the state to mitigate the changes to um, allow them to continue to operate the wraparound health services beyond their basic mandate to the at-risk populations that they serve. And so let's get into all of it. With us now is Mike Lee, the Chief Operating Officer for Evergreen Health. A little later, we'll chat with Liza, one of Evergreen's clients. But first, Mike, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. What is 340B? This is a program that exists now in Albany that gives you some of their funding? So what 340B is, is actually a federal program that allows certain covered entities uh, like federally qualified health centers and Ryan White providers to get uh, discounts on uh, outpatient manufacturers, uh, outpatient prescription drugs from manufacturers. So it's not necessarily funding a taxpayer-funded program. It is a uh, discount that uh, you get from uh, drug manufacturers if you're certain, uh, if you have a certain status. How does that work that the federal government is in a position to give a discount on behalf of a drug company? So as part of drug manufacturers participating in the Medicare and Medicaid programs, uh, one of the things that they have to allow is uh, certain covered entities, again, that mainly safety net providers, 
to participate in this 340B program. So by virtue of them participating in the Medicaid, Medicare program, they also agreed to participate in the 340B program and give discounts to safety net providers. And where does the state come in? Thus far, we've talked about it as a federal program, but the, the, the reason I think that you folks want to speak out about it is because there's something pending at the state level. Absolutely. So the state uh, three years ago decided uh, right now um, managed care plans administer the pharmacy benefit. So right now, if somebody comes in, managed care plan covers the pharmacy benefit. The state wanted to come in and take the pharmacy benefit out of those managed care plans and put them to fee for service. Not to get very technical, and I know it's, it's kind of boring, but anytime the prescription drug benefit is removed from the managed care plans and, and given right over to fee-for-service to straight Medicaid, you have to bill acquisition pricing. So that means the federal government can only pay acquisition pricing. Is that basically, if I was buying a car, that would be sticker price? Is that what you're saying? So, yes. That, no, that would be just the cost to make the car. Okay. So that's sort of what the state is getting. So just to dumb it down sort of in a nutshell... 340B program in the managed care plan, the manufacturer gives the covered entity like Evergreen the discount on the drugs. We then bill the payer the full price. So the difference between the discount and the reimbursed price, that delta is what covered entities, safety net providers use to further patient care and services. So you get a discount from the manufacturer, you bill the insurance payer the full price, the retail for it, and then you keep the difference to pay for underserved populations. So it's not just a discount on the, the pharmaceuticals, it's an operating revenue stream for you. So it is. It is absolutely a source of revenue that a lot of safety net providers use. In fact, most of us here in Western New York absolutely depend on it to make ends meet. And how is the state involved if it's a federal program? What sort of jeopardy is there sure. for this program at the state level right now? So the state has said... We're going to take that pharmacy benefit and we're going to move it out of the managed care plans. By law, the covered entities cannot bill straight Medicaid, you know, the full retail cost of it. They have to just provide do acquisition pricing, which is the cost of the drug. So by doing that, what the state has done is they've taken the resources for themselves. They've taken the ability of the covered entity to take to you know build the retail price fit at at the dis, you know at the discount price build the retail keep the delta instead the state is swooping in they're taking the resources so the state's getting the discount and then they are they want to increase rebates on the back end do they say that they will still give you some sort of pass through so at the end of this process there is no there is no revenue the state has been in conversations with us we've had i've had several conversations with the state uh, myself, in which they've said that they want to make everybody whole, all the all the covered entities across the state. The reality is, if you talk to folks in California who went through a similar thing, as soon as there were budget issues, you know, that fund was the first thing to go. And if you talk to a covered entity in California today, they still have not received a cent of this. So I think it's very dangerous. You know, it's December today. This, this fiscal cliff, this goes in uh, motion on April. So there's nothing the state has done to prepare for this. There's no mechanism in place. So there is no mechanism to make us whole. So you are not able to avoid the change, but you want some sort of assurance that that the money's in a lockbox, that it's not raidable. Right. And unfortunately, only, you know, that's a budgetary issue. The Department of Health doesn't have the ability to set aside indefinite, you know, sums of money uh, for safety net providers. What is the state's rationale? 
I imagine they're arguing that if they bring it in-house, as it were, that they can then save money and, and not necessarily cut anything from your budget. Sure. I think the states, one of the state's arguments is that they want to increase, of course, they want to increase transparency. They want to, you know, increase the amount of rebates that they're able to get on some of these drugs. Um, you know, they, they want a single formulary. And the reality is that we have looked and we have worked across other states. There are other states have, that have had similar wants and needs and have come up with a way to not decimate the safety net to achieve that. And I think that's one of the struggles is we continually try to work, you know, with the Department of Health and, of course, the Hochul administration. You know, when the top shooting happened in East Buffalo, we got a call from uh, the executive branch of the, you know, Kathy Hochul's office, and I pulled in Akua Menzidu, our chief people and diversity officer, and we had a conversation. Sure. We've had around the program. Sure. And they said, what do you need, you know, to continue to provide primary care, you know, on the east side of Buffalo, on Bailey Ave? And it, we had a great conversation. At the end, I said, it's very simple what we need. You know, when we look at what what we how we're doing this, how we're achieving increasing patient services and, and adding patient services and increasing wraparound things. We need three. We need the 340B program. We need you to we need you to delay or reverse the carve out. We need you to we need to figure something else out. And their response to me was, yep, we're aware of it. And that was the end of the conversation. So I, I do think like. This is this program is the one thing that's propping up safety net providers across Buffalo. Everybody, Community Health Center, Buffalo, Jericho Road, Neighborhood Health Center, Chautauqua Center, we're all in the same boat where this will decimate us. And the carve-out is already scheduled to happen. You just want to push it off until they can figure out some way to preserve the funds to make sure that it's, again, using the phrase, Unrateable. Sure. So this it was supposed to go in effect uh, two years ago. This was right at the height of COVID. And our argument was we're in a public health emergency. And even things like COVID and monkeypox, when those and the tops shooting, when public health crises come up and people want healthcare providers to respond, they need predictable and they need stable resources. And that's what 340B is. And this was we were able to convince the legis the, the electeds, the Western New York delegation and folks across the state, the legislative branches, that right now in the middle of COVID, this is not the time to rip the rug out from the, the safety net. So we got a two year delay. Fast forward, and that's where now April two years is. later. Two years, two years later. Um, and I do think that that's where we can achieve something working to get together collaboratively. Because it's not like we've just been sitting here for two years and did nothing. We do have a you know a a relatively stable solution that achieves a lot of what we what we're looking for. And All right. We, yeah. Why does it matter? Talk to me a little bit about the mission of Evergreen or similarly situated community health centers. And one of the reasons this is a big deal when we talk about the managed care plans and the Medicaid folks, 70 percent of our patients are on a managed care plan. So the state swooping in and removing the 340B benefit basically wipes away the benefit, the 340B benefit for safety net providers. When we talk about things like dental dental services, when we talk about uh, behavioral health services, you know, mental health, substance use, pantry services, transportation, I mean, I can go on and on. You know, safety net providers know that those ancillary wraparound services are vital. You know, somebody that has HIV, we can say all you have to do to have to live a happy, normal life is take this pill once a day. But that doesn't happen if they don't have a place to live, if they don't have transportation to their medical appointments, if they are having dental problems. And addressing those those ancillary needs are really what get us the great health outcomes. 
and those are non those aren't reimbursed by any health care plan. And that's not specific to Evergreen. That's that's the kind of stuff that we've discussed here on this program. Whenever we look at the social determinants of health, absolutely, there's always a discussion about wraparound services. Uh, you you can fight diabetes better if people are eating better. Right. That kind of thing. You're looking at it in a much more broad, holistic way, as some of these providers do. Again, Evergreen and community health centers. Right. And that's something we've teamed up with all the other federally qualified health centers in western New York, and that's where this campaign came from. But we all use 340B resources to address our, our health outcomes, and we all use them, as you just said, for the social determinants of health. And if we lose those resources and they're not reimbursed, there's nothing else we have no choice but to cut services at that point. There's no other option. And the nature of these providers, you would argue, is basically underserved populations, period. This carve-out by the state targets only safety net providers. When I, when I, when I, again, when I said that we all, all of us have, you know, when it, whether it's Evergreen, Jericho Road, we all serve a very high a percentage of safety net, traditionally underserved, historically marginalized populations. This carve out for the safety net population only impacts that safety net. You're talking about people that are on managed care Medicaid plans. This this carve out only applies to them and it disproportionately impacts them. We're talking about communities of color, people living with HIV, LGBT folks. These are folks that stand to lose the most in this carve out because because the folks like Evergreen, who, who provide a great deal of care to these folks on Medicaid managed care plans, are going to be severely impacted the most. This might be the point to pause and get a little bit of background on who Evergreen is and who they serve. So Evergreen Health was born out of the HIV AIDS epidemic. And of course, as um, HIV uh, responded to antiretrovirals, we continued to grow. We continued to grow and serve a lot of LGBTQ population, people living with HIV, communities of color, uh, most recently the intellectually and developmentally disabled, and we took over Aspire and People Inc.'s primary care. So these are all patient populations that either are folks can't serve or don't want to serve. And Evergreen has got a niche, just like many other safety net providers, where we're good at it. It's what we do. But we absolutely need the resources to fill in the gaps in care because typical standard reimbursements just aren't enough to do that. One of the the lobbying points that I've seen you have is that a policy that only negatively impacts those in need, you say, is not equitable and will harm Western New Yorkers. There's a population here that you feel is being targeted? Absolutely. There's not a doubt in my mind, and I think that's it's really upsetting we, the community health centers and FQHCs and Ryan White providers, we all provide care to high, a high margin, a high, high rate of disenfranchised populations, a high Medicaid population. So if you have the state and you're saying, we're, we're going to take this benefit away from the safety net population, from the folks that are on a managed care plan, you're targeting, it's the Evergreens, it's the community health centers of Buffalo, it's, it's Jericho Roads. We all serve Medicaid populations. By taking this away from the Medicaid populations, the folks that, we, you know, the disenfranchised populations we serve, this, it harms them the most. They're the ones that are going to lose services. We're not talking about people, you know, that are, that are, you know, going to a private practice or something like that, or that have commercial insurance. We're talking about people that are on Medicaid managed care plans and that have high rates of poverty, chronic illness, and everything else. 
Let's then take that a step further, look at some of the examples of how that plays out, particularly at a place like Evergreen. One of your clients is here. Liza, thanks for stopping by. Thank you for having me. What does this mean to you? Whoa. So it means a lot to me. Uh, This can affect me personally because I'm a person living with HIV. I've been living with HIV for 28 years. Really? Yes. And you take daily medication for it that would disappear perhaps if this goes ahead? Absolutely. Well, actually, I'm on a newer medication that's an injectable medication that I get every two months. But yes, I have to have that medication. Why do you need Evergreen? Why can't you just walk into, I don't know, your pharmacy and say, hey, I I need my injectable now, realizing that injectable is not something you do at home. But uh, to what degree is Evergreen your sole provider? So you're correct there in saying that that injectable does have to be done by a medical provider. So number one, I need Evergreen to be able, so I can go there and get my injectable. You said something about why I can't just go to the pharmacy. Well, Or or another doctor, a different provider that isn't necessarily linked to this funding stream. My experience is that there are not, not many providers that are willing to work with people like me. And when I say people like me, I mean people that are living with HIV, someone who has a history of substance abuse. Um, I used to be an IV drug user. I have been in recovery for 24 years. So when that history comes up, there's always been, it has always been my experience that providers treat me differently and they don't give me the care that I deserve. Tell me more about that. Give me a personal story. Oh, okay. Um, I have a few, but going, I had to have an eye thing done one time And at that point in my life, I was not comfortable with sharing openly about my status, but I would with medical providers. And I did with this eye doctor. He was going to do a surgery procedure. Um, I did not put it on the paperwork. I wanted to discuss that with the doctor one-on-one. And he got very upset at me because I didn't put it on the paperwork. Really? And he told me that that's dangerous and I shouldn't be doing that. Um, and I was hurt, and that's stigmatizing. But it's not if it's not as if at that point in the in the discussion, he had started a procedure. No, no there was, was no no risk of contamination. No. nothing nothing that would put him at risk. Absolutely not. It was me. I wanted to talk to him one on one in person because he was the provider, and I understood that he had, would have to keep that confidential. I just wasn't comfortable with putting that on paper at the time. All right. And is that the kind of thing that drove you to a provider like Evergreen? Well, that's one of the things that Evergreen, they treat me as a person. They don't treat me as a person living with HIV, right? Um, They have helped me with housing. You know, recently, as seven years ago, I left a long-term relationship. Even not being a, even with a job, it was difficult to find decent housing that was affordable, Um, I did not have the money for a security deposit, and Evergreen came through for me. You said you don't like being seen as a person living with HIV, but I think part of the benefit for me during this discussion is to, quite frankly, look at the experiences of a person living with HIV. So how often have you been discriminated against because of your status? Um, there's been many opportunities, and it's just not the the HIV status. The the fact that I have a drug use history has also been held against me. Um, I'm a convicted felon. That has been held against me. So I've had, like, almost three strikes against me 
where when I come to Evergreen, I'm just Liza. I need medical care. I need dental care. I need pharmacy help. I may need housing. I don't know. One day I might need the food pantry. Talk to me about the cost involved here. Let's say you did not have Evergreen or some of the other options that that we're talking about within this context. Would you be able to still get those services but at a different price? Or for you is the issue... Uh, forgive me, the humanity, the idea that they, again, look at you as a person and give you the kind of treatment that you, you deserve. Is there a financial part of it, or is it just a, a um, ease and comfort thing, I think lack of discrimination? I think it's a little bit of both, right? So me personally, I do have a job. I do get health care through, through my employer. Um, actually, I work at Evergreen, right? Um, but... Everybody, I remember there was a time when I was on Medicaid myself, Mm. and Evergreen was my lifesaver at that time. They still are because they are my medical provider also. Um, So it's a little bit of both. It's financial, and it's also... um, Attitudinal. Yes. It's stigmatized, the the stigma behind it, right? Um, Again, it's very difficult to find providers that will just take care of me because that's what they're supposed to do and not really them taking everything else into account. Before you found Evergreen, were you with just a basic standard private practice provider? Well, I actually go back to Mike Mike mentioned about the history of Evergreen, and I was with them. Like I said, I've been living with HIV for 28 years, so back in the day I was with Evergreen. How far back? Let's go back. How far? Uh, oh. when, when were you first... When did you first find out that you were HIV positive? So it was 1984, 1984, 1994, I'm sorry, 1994. Um, and it was a short time after that that I was uh, referred to Evergreen. Um, and there was a time where I was also at ECMC because they do provide HIV care there also. Okay. I got to think that the attitudes then were different than they are today. Oh, definitely. You know, it's, I talk about this a lot. Not only am I HIV, um, a person living with HIV, but my father died in 1984 in New York City, and he had AIDS when he died. So I've been seeing this thing from day one, mm-hmm. um, and I've seen how far we've come, and I I'm also see that if this carve-out happens— that we will probably take 10 steps backwards, um, and it's going to hurt people. If this carve-out happens, would not the marketplace just uh, abhor the vacuum and and move on in? Would not other providers be able to give Liza what it is that she gets from Evergreen? I think the answer to that question is, um, is no, because the resources that we're talking about funding aren't aren't reimbursable. So I I don't know any other organization that's going to be able to come in and fund, you know, dental services at a loss, uh, behavioral health services at a loss, you know, food pantry, transportation, emergency housing, all these things that aren't reimbursed or are under reimbursed by the healthcare industry. There's no mechanism besides 340B for somebody else to come in and, and do that. So I think that's, again, why safety net providers it's so vital to them, and they've done such a great job of creating wraparound services and adding services. But I think if this goes away, if the program goes away, there's nobody coming in to set up shop. To f- There's no way to fund these services. Similar question, Liza. Uh, would you be able to procure these services from a different source? 
for me, that answer is also no. Um, I don't think that I will be able to get these services somewhere else. I mean, I had a, an experience where I was kind of between jo- in, in between insurances, and um, I was able to go to uh, the pharmacy at Evergreen, and I'm thinking, okay, I'll just pay cash for that month. And when I was given the price of that medication that I was on at the time, I was not in a position to do that even at Evergreen. So, um, but they they were able to come through for me then. I'm not asking you to play the victim card, but do you think the health care system in general right now does enough for the, the underserved? No, I don't think they do. I don't think they do. You know, I'm a person that is aging with HIV. I am not the only person that is aging. That means that I'm living longer. I am closer to needing senior services uh, type of services, and what is that going to look like for me um, 28 years from now? So we still have a lot of work to do. So, no, I don't think that healthcare system all the way around is doing everything they can do for us. And is that because they've just never had to? Are they Have they not designed a good system, or, or is there, God forbid, maybe some discrimination there? I think we've gotten, my personal opinion is that I think we've gotten laxed. And because we are aging and we are working and we're having children and we're getting married and we're doing what everybody else is doing. You don't need anything special. I don't need anything special. And that's not the case. Mike, I want to get back to what you said uh, earlier before we started chatting with Liza, that in your discussions with the state, you kind of have a solution in mind. Absolutely. And, and the solution, I will admit, is, is rather complex. It, it, it involves changing some of the price points. It involves limiting some of the uh, reimbursements. I think the big thing is, is that we know there is a path. And I think that's what we just want the opportunity to bring our solution. And we've, we've had a couple conversations. We've seen this work in other states and we're not going to get anything. We're, we're, you know, we, we don't want to come to the table and say, you know, we're not, we're, we expect everything. But the reality is, we can't serve patients without this program. So if we don't come up with a solution, I mean, there is a lot at risk here. You know, to Liza's point that, the you know, does the healthcare industry do enough? And, and I agree it doesn't. But now you're talking about doing even less for some of the neediest populations in the state, in, in western New York. So not only have you, are you not doing enough and we haven't invested in that public health, you know, infrastructure – but there's the one thing keeping it afloat right now, and that's and that's 340B to fund the safety net services that are so essential. Are you optimistic? Have you gotten indications enough from the state that you think that this could possibly be solved? I think we can solve it. I think you know we have we have had some discussions at the state. I think even even more um, you know brighter than that is the is the electeds. We've been working tirelessly with the New York State electeds. Certainly, the Western New York delegation has been great. Not only telling them because this is <laughs> it's kind of a complex, nuanced program and it's complicated. They've been so great at coming. I just said, come in, you know, let me give you a tour. Let me show you because it's easier to show folks like, okay, here's here's what we're doing. This is what we do. This is what we would have to do less because of the lack of exactly. And they really connect with that. And they have been great advocates for us. And I think that's that's, you know, so I think between ongoing conversation um, with the state, I think working with the electeds, just, you know, working with the other community health centers to amplify our voices. The biggest challenge is it's December again. This takes place in April, and we're looking at a fiscal cliff. 
The one thing I think I wish the state would would do is stop, you know, pretending that there is a solution in place because there's absolutely not. Um, so we just like to, you know, be part of an honest conversation. We have all the clinical data. You know, our viral suppression rate for people living with HIV is over 90 percent. You know, that means folks are like Liza. They're happy. They're healthy. And there's no onward transmission of the disease. Let's say that this carve-out goes away and we can no longer provide housing or transportation or dental services. And let's say patient populations like folks living with HIV get unhealthy. So that viral suppression rate goes from above 90, maybe it goes to the mid-80s. There is going to be a cost to that, to the to the health system. A public health cost. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you, you know, so the state might be looking at trying to save money up front. But this will absolutely cost more money in the long run if patient, when patients become unhealthier. Mike Lee, the chief operating officer of Evergreen Health. Liza, you get the last word. I just want to say that I think it's important people know that this is happening and what it can, what is the cost to um, the communities, right? These are, these are my communities. These are my people. So um, the, the impact is going to be grave. And, and I said this before, and I'm going to say it again. Yes, I've been living with HIV for 28 years, but if they take this away from us, where will I be 28 years from now? Or will I even get to see 28 years from now? Liza, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much. And Mike, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having us. Is the, Mike Lee is the uh, chief operating officer of Evergreen Health. Liza, one of their clients. We did reach out to Governor Hochul's office to ask specifically whether these uh, groups will be hurt as much as they contend. Uh, we asked whether there are plans for mitigation that would assure them the operating funds down the road and whether there is uh, any sort of timetable. You heard Mike talk a lot about wanting something in place here before the cliff falls in April. We didn't get a response to those specific questions, but the state did issue a response. It comes in a statement from the New York State Department of Health, and here it is. The state fiscal year 2021 budget delayed the transition of pharmacy services from managed care back into fee-for-service to April 1, 2023. The transition is expected to result in a more efficient pharmacy reimbursement process, better consumer experience, they say, and higher rebates from drug manufacturers. The 340B program is a federal program that is not being eliminated. The Department of Health is working out with the impacted groups and is committed to ensuring a smooth transition. Again, that statement from the State Department of Health, their director, Court Ruddy, uh, director of communications. Stay with us. We move on to a related topic. We're going to be talking with activist Alice Burgos, who by coincidence has been involved in the 340B issue and a whole lot more. We'll get into the lot more when we return. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Check out the Our Town series produced by WNED PBS, but captured by community members on the Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube channel. Ellicottville is a town of variety, not only in what they have to offer, but the people. The Burlington community is uh, becoming increasingly multicultural, and the library is reflecting that. Parks and playgrounds have been what makes the town of Tonawanda a great place to grow up. The series began in 2003, but it's making its debut on YouTube now. Although some of the businesses and people may have changed over the years, the spirit of these wonderful towns remain the same. We just didn't realize what we had in our own backyard. We need the next generation to protect it and carry on. 
Learn about Jamestown, Burlington, Welland, East Aurora, and more than a dozen other beautiful communities in our region by watching the Our Town series now on YouTube. I, w I would live there. <laughs> this is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And good morning again. This is Dave Debo. For the rest of this program, Alexander Burgos is with us. He's a young Hispanic activist. He's done work with the LGBT community. He's done work on the east, uh, west side and the east side. He's active in uh, democratic politics. He's someone who has seen, I think, a lot of the successes maybe and a lot of the struggles that are underway in Buffalo, pushing for change on a variety of fronts, and we will be getting into that for the balance of this hour. Alex, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. little biographical stuff, if we can start with your, your origin story, as it were. Well, Buffalo born and bred? Born and raised. I was okay. born in Sisters Hospital um, to my beautiful Puerto Rican family. Um, you know, lifelong Buffalo resident, super proud, love my city, nowhere I'd rather be in the entire world. And so with that, uh, I want to deliver resources. I want to bring about the change I want to see. And I want everybody in the city to have a better life. Before the program started, we, we were chatting uh, outside the studio briefly. You said that you knew from an early age that you were facing some sort of discrimination. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think from when I was very young, I knew I was different. Okay. In a multitude of ways. But I also think I knew I was different in a positive way because I knew I wasn't just going to sit around and look the other way and stand around. Um, and so with that being said, the things that made me different that once hurt me and the things that I thought were weaknesses are things that I actually now see as my superpower. And are you referring to, you're up front, I'm not telling the world any secret here, you're a gay man and you're a Latino. Yes. Which one of those results in maybe more discrimination or more, more obstacles for you? Um, I think I have a very unique uh, experience and perspective being both a person of color and a member of the LGBT community uh, in that I don't think that I can really choose one or the other. I think my whole existence... It is it is you, regardless. That, that's me. Okay. And from a very young age, I knew that my entire existence was heavily politicized and that people like me were always at the forefront of you know negative policy change or legislative action. Um, and I knew that from when I was eight years old. Really? Uh, yeah. I mean... The I, politics portion of it at eight years, that's interesting to me. Well, you know, eight, nine, ten, that was around the time when... Uh, you know, the, the 2008 presidential elections were on their way and people were name dropping themselves as candidates. And then eventually, as time went on, the first race that I fully, fully paid attention to was the historic primary between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, mm -hmm. and which eventually led to the historic victory of Barack Obama. So, I mean, I was not only, uh, you know, experiencing my first moment of being engaged, I was also witnessing history. And I think you're going to see that in a lot of younger millennials and Gen Z, that their first 
intro into maybe politics or activism uh, occurred during moments that are profoundly historic. That's interesting because I think the trope, I think the stereotype is the younger generation doesn't care. They're not active. They're not involved. Okay, yeah, there might have been that Bernie Sanders thing that, that fired people up, but by and large, they're not involved. That's the stereotype. Push back. I I don't think that's true. I mean, I'm always surrounded by young people who are absolutely brilliant and engaged and really want to uh, be the change that they want to see in the community. I think there needs to be uh, more investment in young people, in young leaders across the board, not just on the political spectrum, but we need to invest in our young nonprofit leaders. We need to invest in our young leaders in the private sector. We need to invest, again, in our young leaders emerging in politics because eventually the time will come when they have big shoes to fill and we need to make sure that they're ready, equipped, and prepared to hit the ground running. It almost sounds like you're saying we don't have a deep enough bench or we're not recognizing the, the power of the farm team? Well, I, I, I think that there, there absolutely needs to be a bigger investment in younger leaders. And, uh, you know, I'm very proud to be someone that does that and has done that for my entire career. Um, you know, I create a lot of community programming and events uh, where youth are centered. And it's not very often, uh, especially in LGBT events, where you see that they are youth-centered and youth-specific. Really? Yes, Interesting. Uh, I would not have known that. No, and and uh, a lot of people don't. And uh, I'm really happy to see, um, you know, a lot greater investment happening in youth programming, um, as well as to be someone that creates that, um, particularly for the black and brown LGBTQ youth by creating events like ballroom events. I was going to um, ask you, give me an example of something you've, you've created recently. Okay. Uh, I think... Oh, my God. The one that everyone always talks about uh, in June for Pride Week. It was that Friday, the Friday of Pride before the parade. Um, we had done the Intersect Vogue Night, which uh, basically we had closed off Allen Street. Mm -hmm. uh, we had had a stage built and we had ballroom categories for cash prizes and free tickets to Pride. We had about 500 people there. Um, primarily black and brown LGBT people. Um, so that's always an event that people always talk about, whether they saw it on Facebook Live or they saw it on an Instagram story or they see photos or videos. That's the one that everyone always mentions to me and asks me every single time, are you going to bring it back? And, of course, the answer is sure. I, I hope so. <laughs> okay. All right. Fair enough. You mentioned pride, and I, I want to uh, point out a, a quote that you recently profiled uh, on Channel 2, uh, my dear friend Claudine Ewing, her community She's program. Amazing. And um, she included this quote from the raising of the pride flag, where you said, homophobia, racism, and transphobia are a cultural malignancy. They are a trifecta of public health crisis that exasperate, uh, exacerbates the disparities that we face every single day. That's powerful stuff. Thank you. Uh, talk a little bit about each one of those components and, as you said in that quote, how perhaps they, they, they work together as a trifecta. Homophobia, racism, transphobia. I Do they all walk down the same street together? <laughs> <laughs> They're definitely neighbors. Okay. Um, you know, in all seriousness, they are, um, they are a branch 
different, perhaps different branches of the same tree. The same tree. And ultimately, the only way to truly eradicate them is to dig out that tree, get out that root, and throw it away in an eco-friendly compost. In an eco-friendly um, <laughs> <laughs> um, You know, but, but I, I always say that, you know, a systemic problem requires a systemic solution. And, you know, as someone that has worked in various capacities throughout the system, I recognize that oftentimes uh, the change that people want is not always a change that they get or the delivery is not always the way they expect, but it is, in fact, a move in the right direction. I've had a discussion on this program with a lot of different people that work in the public health arena. And and it's interesting that you talk about the systemic nature of it, because there are some, and I know I, I've, I've discussed this on the program before, there are some that say, you got to just treat the health problem that's in front of you. If someone is in need, they have a need, you solve that need. Um, the other philosophy is that this thing is, as you said, systemic that you got to dig out the roots. How do you dig out a root? That seems to be a really tough row to hoe if we can continue with the gardening metaphors. Well, um, you know, I think uh, for me personally, being the change I want to see and stepping up and doing my part is uh, what I do. I think folks can all contribute in various capacities, whether that be through voting, whether that be through activism, um, whether that be through working within uh, said system. We need people across the board, uh, you know, and I think all activism is, for the most part, good and all intersects and intertwines very well. I also think that uh, activism doesn't just have to be, um, you know, what most people think of, like protesting or being on the media or whatever the case may be. If you're giving someone a safe space to just be themselves, if you're giving someone room to unwind and relax, if you're giving someone a place where they can talk and ask questions, that in itself is revolutionary and impactful. Validating their voice or their perspective brings it to the debate in a way that you say is constructive. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, when you are affirming someone, when you're building them up, you never know what future lies ahead of that person. You don't know the impact that you may have in the life of that person. I mean, let me tell you something. You know, even just a few years ago, I didn't think that I could have the level of uh, influence or do the kind of work that I do now. And uh, it took people who really believed in me, people who really instilled, uh, you know, the resilience of human spirit and, um, you know, all of that that got me through. And so I live with that philosophy that because of that nurturing and that care and that af affirmation that I got, I now have to pass that blessing on to other people. So it's not necessarily standing on the steps of City Hall with your fist raised singing, uh, the, the people united will never be defeated. It's interesting that you define activism as a, a more personal thing. I've never heard that before. It can be both. You know, I, I think activism is up for interpretation uh, for everyone. And, um, you know, I, I, as I mentioned, you know, we need to have lifelong investment in our community, but also in the people in our community, personal investment, right? We need to know people on a name-by-name -name basis because when we're solving issues in a community, right, those issues are not just correlational or linear in di di the direct lives of people, right? So 
you know, people are multi are complex and multifaceted. So when you maybe introduce a piece of legislation to address said barrier, some people may miss gaps or they may have another need or that particular uh, policy change does not particularly address their need. So let, let, let's uh, bring an example to the table. Earlier in the program, we were talking about the campaign that uh, the various community health centers, Evergreen and others, are working on to leave 340B. Yes. You, were, you were part of that. The campaign, yes? Not, not Evergreens, uh, but I do my own work with that. And, um, you know, Evergreen is doing amazing work with that. I, I actually see their Leave 340B website and mm -hmm. social media pages, um, and I am very much so on their side with that. Um, 340B provides essential funding and reimbursement to organizations like Evergreen to provide wraparound services right. uh, to the community. And uh, those wraparound services are not just primary care. It's not just testing. Um, it can be things like their food pantry. It could be things like, um, you know, their MOCA center, which provides LGBT people of color with a safe space. Um, it can be... I think I heard somewhere that activism is providing someone a safe space. Yeah. You heard it from me. <laughs> I, I, I thought so. Yeah. And, and you know... When you go to an organization like Evergreen, it's a one-stop shop. You get absolutely everything in there. And if they don't have it, they'll point you in the right direction. I want to find out, though, some of the work that you specifically do. You say on, on 340B you weren't necessarily uh, with Evergreen. Let's say let's use that sort of as an object lesson. You look at an issue. You feel it needs to be changed or, or reformed. How do you attack it? What did you do in regards to 340B? Well, you know... Uh, as we may have spoken about earlier, um, I have spoken with legislature legislators about that. Yeah. Um, you know, and because of oftentimes uh, the sensitive nature of 340B, um, it's best not to uh, put your cards all on the table in a media interview with someone like me. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you don't want to do. <laughs> um, you know, but I, I, I definitely uh, have raised attention to okay. the issue where the people who can make that change and can call those shots need to know. All right. Alexander Burgos is here. You just heard him speak a little bit about lobbying work with legislators. Earlier this year, in the past couple of weeks, he actually got invited to and met with several Hispanic leaders uh, in the office of State Attorney General Letitia James. We'll talk a little bit about that. And his name may also be familiar. If you were watching NBC News recently, they did a story about the healing efforts that are underway in Buffalo through the Breaking Barriers Youth Program. Well, guess what? Alexander was part of that, too. Much more to talk about. We'll be back after this. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. There are a lot of great ways to spend $8 a month and get a blue check mark. So why not become a member of WBFO, your NPR station? You'll be a verified member on the spot, and your money will support high-quality news and information. For fun, we'll send you a snazzy window cling and a travel mug, both with our logo and the blue check mark that shows everyone you're a verified member of WBFO. Just call 1-877-456-8870 or go to WBFO.org to make your pledge. Thank you. Watch the WNED-PBS original production, Frederick Law Olmsted, Designing America. What his parks are all about is finding immensely practical solutions to the problem of building a dream in the middle of a city. Frederick Law Olmsted Designing America, now streaming on YouTube and the PBS video app. 
Support for the WBFO Disability Desk is provided by the Peter and Elizabeth C. Tower Foundation, a family foundation that believes every young person should have the chance to achieve their personal goals. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And we are talking this hour with Alexander Burgos. He's an activist on Buffalo's West Side. He's a member of the Hispanic community. He's worked with the LGBT community. He's lobbied with politicians. Much to talk about there. And you were recently, this is interesting, you were recently on national television. Yes. NBC News was in town talking about some of the healing that's underway since 514. Yes. They looked specifically at uh, the Breaking Barriers group that uh, is, is run by uh, the, the men of um, youth and men of color program at Say Yes. Um, they got together with that group, and then that group pulled in other people, which is how you were featured as a part of this uh, program yeah. on, on the national news. It was a healing circle you were a part of? Tell me what that was about. Yes. So, uh, you know, before I go on, I have to give a huge shout out to my good friend, Malik Stubbs, who is a real leader in this community. Um, I went to high school with him, uh-huh. Mac High for Life. Um, McKinley? And, yes. Okay. Yes. And, uh, you know, he led the way with that story. He really did. And, um, you know, if you watch the multi-part docuseries, uh, you go to grocery stores, you go to his family's home, um, you go to the healing circle. So it really gives you a very multifaceted lens, not only on him as a person, but also the needs of the community at large. Um, the segment I was featured out featured on in particular was the healing circle um, on Jefferson Avenue. And, um, you know, it was led by the Breaking Barriers Group, uh, mm-hmm. which is a program under Say Yes Buffalo. Um, and the actual conversation was about an hour long. Uh, the segment was around seven minutes, mm. um, but it was a very intimate, personal, emotional, and powerful conversation centered around healing, centered around systemic change, centered around resilience. Um, and it really gave uh, all the people in that room a moment to just be themselves and not always have to be weighed down with what comes uh, with being a leader, right? Leaders need help too. Leaders mm. need healing too. Leaders need to decompress. And so to see people who are constantly looking out for their community and constantly paving the way of much needed change, to see them be vulnerable, to see them talk about their healing and their journey and their experience, I'll never forget it. And I'm forever grateful. And it's been more than six months, but I've heard from a lot of community members that we're not over this. No, absolutely not. And this is not this is not just one moment. This is generations. This is generations. This is, you know, unfortunately, one side effect and byproduct of a much larger problem that has happened for hundreds of years. I think that's the genesis of this program, to kind of look at, uh, as you said earlier, the roots of the problem, the things that may have been there uh, underneath the tree, but we never noticed the tree until it grew tall enough to say, oh, my God, there's a tree. Um 
the roots of systemic racism, the roots of segregation on the east side. That's a heck of a lot more hard to tackle than something that isn't systemic. How, how do you start the conversation? What does the, what does the, the uh, theoretically, the white person from Orchard Park who hasn't necessarily had contact with the east side, what do they need to hear to get that ball rolling? I think first and foremost, people need to be willing to be open, right? Because uh, creating any form of change, any messaging that you put out to someone doesn't matter if they either don't believe in it or they're not open to it, right? So there has to be openness and a semblance of at least belief that the messaging could be true or that the messaging is important in order to get that messaging through. So it, it's really dependent on the person receiving the message and how much work has already happened inside of them. Uh-huh. Some people are not ready to hear that message. But what I can but say... But if we create a safe space for the message, there we are again. Activism as a means of creating safe spaces. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think ultimately uh, people need to feel like when they are, you know essentially pouring their heart out sometimes when it comes to systemic issues, uh, that that person is going to affirm them, that that person is going to listen, that that person is going to hear. Many people get frustrated because whenever they're going down their path, they're constantly hitting corners. And so um, that oftentimes leaves them feeling jaded and defeated to ever having the conversation to begin with. So I don't think that the work is always on the messenger. Perhaps the work is in its delivery, but the work uh, is really tied to a moral cleansing of society at large. That's a huge, huge thing to, uh, to, to, to try to change. Yeah. But you're willing to do it. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Uh, talk about the needs you see on uh, both the east and the west side right now, the community needs. What does Buffalo need? Well, you know... Both of their communities are very unique um, and diverse in their own way, but there are some shared struggles. Um, you know, I think people feel there is a lack of investment. I think people feel uh, that they have no say or voice in developments that occur. I think people sometimes also feel like so much good is happening around them, but not necessarily to them, right? And so with that... Uh, it's important. Say that again. I, I just I need to hear what you mean. So good, many p- good that is happening around them, but not necessarily to them. Yes. What do you mean? So when you see economic development, for example, and uh, people may feel like those opportunities don't necessarily benefit them, right? So if you see maybe a loft building that is being built in your neighborhood, that is economic development, but someone may feel but, like... Uh, I'm not going to afford a loft kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Or they may feel like, oh, well, because of this, this is going to be a new development that is not going to benefit me, but is in fact going to maybe throw me out or displace me. Mm. Um, And so with that being said, it's very important that our community be at the forefront of of all major developments and, you know, recognizing that our community is part of the fabric of Western New York's revitalization. So that can be through things like community-based agreements. That can be through things like citizens' advisory boards. Um, or committees. Um, And again, that all starts with making sure that our community is educated and empowered. 
Uh, there, there's a saying I've heard some of the planners on the east side. If it is about us but not with us, it is not for us. That's kind of what you're saying. The idea that there has to be direct involvement and an awareness of needs at the at the grassroots level on the ground. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it also ties back into the saying you hear a lot, by us, for us. Yeah. If you uh, are missing either one of those components, then I think that an initiative is rather ineffective. All right. You recently had the opportunity to attend a roundtable, I guess, if, if that's even what we can call it. Yes. Uh, New York State Attorney General Letitia James called together several Hispanic leaders in Buffalo, put them at a table, and said, let's just talk. Let's just figure out what the issues are that perhaps we need to address. What was on your agenda there? Without without revealing any confidences, what did you tell her? Um, well, it was a very uh, laid-back conversation that all of us got to have, and I'm super grateful um, that we got to be part of that. Um, I commend Attorney General, for, uh, Attorney General Tish James for her leadership um, and for her commitment to meeting us where we're at. Um, you know, I think it was a first really good step that she didn't invite us to New York City or Albany to come meet her to talk about our mm -hmm. issues. She came to us. She came to our community. She came to our home. Um, so we were talking about issues that centered around poverty, economic development, um, racial health equity, um, arts and culture. Uh, you know, that was something that I was very adamant about because I believe that uh, art and cultural development in our youth and in our communities is directly intertwined to equitable economic empowerment. Um, you know, infrastructure, um, bail reform, criminal justice reform, um, you know, we kind of hit, I think, almost every single issue because we had people across so many different sectors, um, age groups, lived experiences, and so forth at that table and, um, you know, I, I could say if for anyone that was there, um, I know that they were very impressed with the end result of that conversation. After talking with you for this past half hour, I, I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Are you an optimistic guy? Because some people who are involved in the press for change can get discouraged. Are you optimistic? I believe that resilience is... Uh, seeing the face of adversity and taking it head on with a smile on your face. So you're always smiling. I'm always At trying. At least you try to be. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Good answer. Alexander, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Alexander Burgos is an activist on the West Side. He's involved in the LGBT community, as, as we've talked about during this entire program, working in a lot of different ways to move forward with youth activism in Buffalo. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Coming up on the program tomorrow, of course, it is our Producers Picks program, highlights of previous uh, interviews you might have heard. On that program tomorrow, we have Dr. Myron Glick from Jericho Road. We have Jennifer Parker. We have Chandra Redfern from the BFNC. So much more. Stay with us. We do this every day at 10 o'clock, Monday through Thursday. And, of course, if you missed anything, subscribe to it as a podcast or just listen to the uh, replay tonight at 9. Thanks for being with us. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown. I'm Dave Debo. We'll chat again tomorrow.